So this probably isn't the best way to start out a, a message on a Sunday morning, but I want to tell you that I'm really looking forward to next week's message. Uh, my friend Kenny Ching is going to be preaching for us next week, and I'm really looking forward to what he's going to bring to us. Um, I've, I've asked him to preach for us because he's a friend of mine, and because I believe he's gifted to do so. He's a, he is a, he's a really sharp guy, an incisive thinker. And he, he, he loves Jesus, and he cares about his faith in a very deep way, all of which I anticipate um, we're going to be blessed by next week. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. Thanks a lot um, for sharing with us next week. However, before we get to that message at the beginning of chapter 3 of Romans, we actually have to deal with the end of chapter 2 in Romans, and we actually have to have a message here today, which I am now going to share with you. And the first thing that I want to share with you is this. This is probably not going to come as some kind of a, an amazing um, new revelation to you, but here is the truth. In this world of ours, things tend to go bad. Um, good things tend to get rotten. Food is good, and good food is even better. But something is smelling up the refrigerator. You move the cans and bottles around and suddenly, there in the back corner, ugh, what was that? Oh my, it was that lovely turkey pot pie from a few months ago. Now there's nary a vegetable to be recognized in the fuming, moldy, gelatinous glob dishonoring the plate it is sitting on. And it stinks. Someday I'm going to invent a new kind of refrigerator. One where you take a plate covered by a septic glob of moldy organic matter, put it in the back corner for a month or two, and out comes a lovely turkey pie, fresh and delicious. Any venture capitalists want to go in on it with me? Impossible. Or maybe possible, rearranging things at a molecular level, but prohibitively expensive. Exercise is good, and good exercise is even better. And what is a better spur to this good practice than healthy and wholesome athletic competition? Schools all over America have athletic competitions. But when we lose sight of the goal of personal and corporate health, the competition takes on a life of its own. It becomes an end in itself. Winning becomes everything. Nothing short of being the best will do. And now athletes are actually taking drugs to make them bigger and stronger and faster that will have catastrophic long-term effects on their health. And it stinks. Religion is good. And good religion is even better. But when we lose sight of the goal, when it takes on a life of its own, when it becomes the end in itself, we're in trouble. There are catastrophic long-term effects when we are tricked into believing our religious name, Jew, Muslim, Shiite, Christian, Protestant, Catholic, Evangelical, Presbyterian is the point. 
or that our religious rules will lead us to heaven or that our religious rituals guarantee our salvation. This stuff happens and it stinks. Paul's argument so far in the book of Romans, well, let me remind us once again of the thematic statement for the whole book of Romans that Paul gives us in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man will live by faith. And the first thing that Paul does is he gives us the bad news of inescapable, unavoidable, and wrath-deserving sin. Brilliantly setting up his lengthy presentation of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ by grace through faith in him. This gospel, it's about changing people. People who need to be changed. And that means everybody. He begins by exposing the reality of God's wrath against deserving human sin and includes a list of some of the pagan-like sins rampant in every culture and in every age. Lying, idolatry, sexual impurity, envy, murder, gossip, slander, arrogance, family chaos, ruthlessness, and encouraging other people in all of these sorts of sins. Then, in chapter 2, he immediately turns his guns on the self-satisfied moralist, who fancies himself exempt from such criticism because of his higher status as a better breed of human being. You who judge others, you do the same things. Paul says, you who love to detect and deride the stench of sin in others, you're in the same refrigerator. And so your prideful condemnation of others is simply another reason why God's wrath is being stored up against you. What foolishness to think that you aren't going bad with the rest of us. Now here, in the middle of chapter 2, Paul focuses his attention on a subset of this second group of prideful and judging sinners, religious people. And not just any religious people. Next, he addresses good religious people, the best religious people of his day, the Jews. Paul looks at the very strength of this good religion, and this is his conclusion. It stinks. Let's look at our text for today, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. Hear the word of God. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you for being present with us here today. And we pray that you would help us now, that by your power you would open our hearts and minds to receive what you would give us here today. Whatever insight, whatever wisdom it is that you want us to grab a hold of and to think about more deeply, to apply to our lives, to say yes to here today. Lord, I pray that you would do it by your grace, by your mercy, by your power and according to your love and mercy and grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the second thing I want to share with you today. There are three things a good religion will give you, four that will make it good. First, a good name among people. And then, a good code to live by. And third, a good set of practices or rituals to express your beliefs. And then finally, a good relationship with God. The Jews had the best of three of these strengths of good religion. And it's very interesting that the argument that Paul has here against the Jews doesn't make any attempt to point out their weaknesses. And they did have weaknesses, weaknesses that had been recently Demonstrated. A weakness of, for instance, a misguided emphasis on political aspirations. Their own Messiah showed up and they didn't recognize him and they rejected him because they thought the Messiah was supposed to be a political Messiah that was going to take the people of the Jews and put them back on top of the political spectrum where they belong to reestablish their kingdom over and against all the other political kingdoms in the world. That was a huge flaw. But Paul doesn't mention that one. There also is this element of racial elitism. I mean, the Jews had a tendency to think that God had chosen them because they simply were a better race of people than everybody else. Forgetting that God had chosen them in part to be his instrument of blessing for all of the races of the world. They just kind of thought that they were better. And that was a huge flaw, but Paul doesn't mention that one either. Instead, Paul focuses on their very real strengths. Their name. The Jews were known around the Roman Empire as a people who were, in fact, special. Their religion was attractive to people because they seemed to have something others were lacking. 
They were clearly and consistently serious about what they did for their God. Their relationship with God was something that was real and other people saw it. In fact, many Gentiles chose to make their way toward God by making themselves proselytes to Judaism, drawn to the Jewish religion because it seemed real, unlike all the other religions that couldn't manufacture what the Jews had. And so there were many that would be proselytes that would, that would move in toward Judaism, even though they could never actually be fully a Jew because they weren't a racial Jew. This good name was even recognized by the Roman government at times as they were often granted special privileges and exemptions. Also sometimes singled out for special um, punishments but certainly because, in part, they were seen as special, different. The truth is, these were the chosen people. God the Creator had graciously given them a special name among all the nations of the world. The Jews among all people groups were the ones chosen by God for this special honor. And the Jews among all people were chosen by God for this special responsibility. If a good religion is supposed to give you a good name, the Jews' religion was as good as it gets. Paul begins this section of his argument. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, and then their code, their law, to the Jews alone, God's law was given. The law, the Ten Commandments, The law also can refer to the first five books of the Old Testament, what are called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also called the law. If a good religion is supposed to give you a code to live by, from the call of Abraham to the delivery of the Ten Commandments to Moses at Mount Sinai, the Jews' religion was as good as the world had ever seen. Paul acknowledges the role God had given them in his world. Verses 19 and 20. Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants. Paul is not simply mocking them. He is acknowledging who they are as stewards of God's law. They were these things. They were people of the law. It was their pride and joy intended to make them believe it had been given to them because they were more worthy than all of the other nations. Paul says, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, dot, 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 their practices and rituals. God gave them many amazing, deep, high rituals straight from his throne. Their sacrificial system symbolizing their opportunity to be restored in their relationship with Yahweh God. Feasts and festivals like Passover and Tabernacles and Yom Kippur and Hanukkah, helping them to remember God's presence and miraculous work for them throughout their history. Circumcision, the identifying sign given by God to Abraham at the very beginning of their history. 
According to James Edwards, in his Romans commentary, circumcision was, quote, the trump card of Jewish confidence, and the sign of circumcision had replaced the significance it represented. C.K. Barrett, in his commentary, says this, circumcision was regarded as, quote, a passport to salvation. Exemplary contemporary statements from first century Judaism go kind of like this. The circumcised do not descend into Gehenna. Gehenna is an old Jewish word, Hebrew word, that uh, essentially means hell. At the last, Abraham will sit at the entrance to Gehenna and will not let any circumcised man of Israel go down there. If a good religion is supposed to give you meaningful practices, rituals to perform, who could hold a candle to Judaism? Paul says circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Here's the problem. God's people, the Jews, were not doing what this name, code, and practice asked of them. Things tend to go from bad to worse in the refrigerator we all live in. Even religion. Their name? Like we all would do, the Jews presumed upon the honor of God's call to them, but they weren't living up to their responsibility as the chosen people. Chosen for a purpose, but that part seemed dispensable, optional. Their practices? By doing the right things in the right ways, they thought they were putting the living God in their debt. Circumcised men were guaranteed salvation by virtue of the sign itself. They thought having the law was enough. Doing it tended to be optional. Obedience was redefined in ways that worked for those assuming responsibility for guarding the law. Martin Luther interprets this section and this uh, critique in a Sermon on the Mount sort of way, saying that it's inner violations of the heart and will that invalidate before God's sight the outer appearance of law-keeping. For example, anger is worthy of judgment just as murder is. If you're angry at your brother inside, as, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're just as guilty as if you actually acted out and actually kill somebody. Or adultery of the heart. If you look at someone lustfully, it's as though you had actually committed adultery um, in the flesh. That's how Luther interprets this. Basically saying, well, you're just as bad because you actually violate the prince, these principles in a deeper sort of spiritual way, even if you don't actually act them out. But friends, the truth is more obvious than this. You don't have to look for a mysterious spiritual sort of interpretation. The Jews, on the whole, were not keeping the law. And, and if you don't want to take my word for it, just open up your Bible to the Old Testament and look in any of the prophets that you find in the Old Testament. And you'll hear them again and again and again, announcing that God's people have, not just in their heads or in the spirit, but in actual acts, violated the covenant again and again, and they need to repent. The Jews on the whole were not keeping the law. 
Their religion did not have the power to keep their own people from blatant violations of their own code. They did commit adultery. Rabbis told the story of a rabbi's wife caught uh, a rabbi's wife who caught her husband in, in adultery by disguising herself as another woman. That was part of this of their culture, part of their religion, part of the thing that was circulating among Jews. They did rob temples. A story from 40 years before Paul's letter was written tells of a wealthy Roman woman named Fulvia who was convinced to convert to Judaism and give her money to the temple. And the four Jews who were so convincing pocketed her money. This led Emperor Tiberius in AD 19 to expel the Jewish community from Rome. And Paul says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So it's a, it's a problem that God's people were not living up to their name and their code and their practices. But there was a worse problem. The Jews, God's people, came to presume that having these three, the good name, the good code, the good practices, automatically gave them the fourth, a good relationship with God. And it didn't. Circumcision. Their own prophets had told them that it was of no value apart from inner transformation. Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26. The days are coming, the prophet says, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the desert in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The law. Paul says it will enhance your relationship with God only if you keep it. Only if you do what it says. And you don't. In fact, you can't. In fact, Paul says uncircumcised Gentiles can not only earn the rewards of circumcision, but also put themselves in a position to condemn all the Jewish lawbreakers by keeping the law. But, oh, by the way, they don't. And they can't either as we have seen and are going to see in the next chapter. Their name, good among men in the time of Paul, not so good today, certainly not good at all in the eyes of God the Father. An identity for people who have somehow, by keeping some rules or doing some religious rituals, put God in their debt, not at all. God says to the Jews, I sent my son to you. He came as one of your own. He told you the truth. He worked to correct your errors. He ministered in my love. And you had him murdered. Suppressing the truth, violating your own laws, and even declaring that you had no king but Caesar instead of me to get the deed done. My people means something different today. It means faith in my son, Jesus. And still, 
you reject me by rejecting him. And still you define yourself against me by defining yourself against him. Your name is now known in large measure as those who do not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, my son. You even try to stop my own people, the Christian church, from sharing the gospel with your people, calling it blatantly arrogant and religiously insensitive to suggest that they need Jesus. And you've even convinced people who call themselves Christians and my church to agree with you in this. Their presumption then actually became a huge roadblock to their coming to saving faith in the one true Savior and Lord. Religion has gone bad. What was good has become ghastly. So let's conclude by uh, asking some questions about us, about Christianity. Is it a good religion? Do we have a good name among men? Christian? Is it one that puts God in our debt? I'm a Christian. God owes me good things. I've got my ticket to heaven. And he has to honor it. In fact, he has to give me blessings and prosperity in this life because I have that badge that I can flash to him. Do we have a good code to live by? Is that what it's about? Do we have good practices to express our beliefs and solidify our faith? The sacraments. Baptism. It's the new circumcision. It really is actually called that in Scripture. There is a relationship. But does it have a life of its own? Is it a guarantee of salvation, independent of what we profess and how we live, or without continual reference to the good news of the gospel, or without a real relationship of trust with Jesus Christ the Lord? Hey, I don't need any of that stuff. I've been baptized. The Lord's Supper. Does it have a life of its own? Are we going to be sacramentalists? Are we going to say that God's grace comes through the table? And if you come to the table, you got it, independent of anything else. It's a bad idea. Is it a way of putting God in our debt? Hey, I took communion. You owe me, buddy. No way. How much of this sort of stuff would it take to produce a good relationship with God. How many times uh, taking communion? How many baptisms in the life of a church? How much of a good name among people in the community? Oh, you Christians are nice people. You put on trunk or treats. We like you guys. You give us candy. How much of that? How much of our good codes? Hey, we're upstanding citizens. We do right things, mostly. How much of that? How many good practices of coming to church? You know, you people that should be sitting right here. Actually, we had kids here before, but you're missing out on that. How much of that 
would it take to produce a good relationship with God? It will never happen that way. Whatever good name God might bestow upon us, as long as it is attached to us, it will go bad. And that stinks. Whatever good code of truth and justice and righteousness God gives us, we won't be able to keep it. And that stinks a lot. Whatever good religious practices God gives us, we will tend to fixate on them and forget about Him. And that really stinks. In our refrigerator, we are all stinking sinners. Even all of us nice religious people. It's important for us to understand that. Do you understand that? Help will have to come from outside our will and our power. Is it possible to reverse the process? Yes. But it will be very, very costly. Who could pay for it? Only God himself. And he has, and he does. Christianity. It's more than a good religion. It has to be. It's not about us. It's not really about religion at all, good or otherwise, at least not to start with. It's not our good name, but God's good name. It's not about the good code or law we can't keep, but the God who kept it for us and saved us anyway. It's not about our religious practices, but the Lord whom we remember and worship in them. We begin with the relationship. And then in the strength of that partnership with God, we work on the religious stuff. It's good. It just isn't essential. It isn't going to save us. God does that in Jesus Christ. We begin with that saving relationship. It's important and freeing for us to understand this. Do you understand it? Christianity, it's a humbling, gratitude-inducing, joy-producing, God-glorifying, life-saving relationship. Paul gives us two final clues about this, even as he is pulling the false foundation out from under the prideful religious people. From the beginning and the end of this text that we've read today. Verse 17, he says, If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, this word brag could be uh, translated boasting. It's kauksalmai in Greek. And it can be a bad word. It can mean boasting in yourself or bragging. Or it actually can be good, boasting in God, which is not a bad definition of worship and praise. Literally, boasting in God. 
In context, the NIV, I think, gives us a good translation by saying, using the word brag, because it's actually about using God to boast in yourself. This is how good religion goes bad. Hey, look at how well we keep our religion. Look at how well we believe. Look at how well we serve. Look at how our beliefs are better than all the other people's beliefs about God. And what are we doing? We are using God to boast in ourselves. It's really easy to do, isn't it? This is how good religion goes bad. And it stinks. On the other hand, truly boasting in God is a sign of having a good relationship with Him. Praise for God. And that doesn't stink. And then, at the end, in verse 29, Paul says, No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Only God can do this inward change of heart work for us. And the Jewish prophets proclaim this Again and again, years before, again, read the prophets. I will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh to replace your heart of stone. I will do that. I will cause you to follow me. I will cause you to follow my statutes. And there is another sign that God has done this that we are in the midst of a healthy relationship with God. And it is this, seeking praise from God rather than from yourself or from other people. Seeking praise from God. Trying to please God and caring that you do by what you say and what you do and what you think. Caring about that even a little bit, that's a sign that God is doing that work in you, in us. And that has the sweet smell of miraculous redemption. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you give me the privilege of working with this stuff, thinking about this stuff, sharing out of this stuff, first for me, and then if anybody cares to listen, for people in this church. Lord, thank you for the richness of your word and the depth of your truth and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we don't deserve it but you've given it to us anyway. Thank you. May the proclamation of your truth and your word, along with whatever truth and insight it conveys to us, also help us to affirm this amazing truth that you are gracious toward us, that we matter to you, that you love us, And you want to see us be the healthy, whole, 
righteous, just people that you've made us to be way more than even we do. And Lord, we thank you for your promise that the work that you have begun in us, you will see to completion. Thank you. We pray this in your name and for your sake.